0: when New York shut down and I had nothing to do because there was no sports, I wanted to retrace the contours of that love, which I do in this book, Reborn in the USA, uh, which is really trying to reconnect to a time and a place when America really saved me.
1: Hey, guys, welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Media I. My guest this week is Roger Bennett. He is the co-host of the Men and Blazers podcast and television show... An NBC sports soccer analyst, a man of boundless enthusiasm, and the author of a new book, Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home, which is available now. The book, which is a New York Times bestseller, is a hilarious and moving tribute to the United States, written through the lens of a kid raised in the drab gray confines of Liverpool, England in the 1980s. Bennett moved to the United States as soon as he could and became a citizen in 2018, a moment he describes as the greatest day of his life. He now lives in New York, where I called him this week to discuss his book, sports media, and England's crushing loss in the Euro final at Wembley Stadium. Roger, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing?
0: Oh, Hayden, it's a joy to be with you.
1: (laughs) So could you tell my listeners that might not know, tell us what your book is about and what prompted you to write it.
0: It's a love letter to the United States of America written by a new American for, you know, I always joke that I love America more than Kenny Powers loves America. Um, I'm a um, sports broadcaster by profession. Um, And when sports stopped during the pandemic, I, I lived in Manhattan I grew up as a kid in England, Liverpool, the north of England, a magical city. Um, but it was a city in the 80s that had really fallen on hard times. Just a post-industrial Britain, coal mill, coal pits closing down, steel mills, you know, cotton mills. The whole north grinding to a halt, and Liverpool, which was once a great port city, had no reason to be. And unemployment soared. Heroin epidemic. There was just general sense of hopelessness. And I survived by inhaling every single American anything I could get my hands on, the books, movies, television shows, Run DMC, Tracy Chapman, Heart to Heart, Miami Vice, the Chicago Bears Super Bowl winning team and more. And they seemed to show me a life that could be lived with hope and joy and confidence in glorious technicolor, whereas my life was lived in black and white. And when New York shut down and I had nothing to do because there was no sports, I wanted to retrace the contours of that love, which I do in this book, Reborn in the USA, uh, which is really trying to reconnect to a time and a place when America really saved me.
1: Your dreams of America were a sort of escapism that you had growing up in Liverpool. And obviously the image of America that is inspired by Don Johnson and various John Hughes movies is not exactly what America is like. Did you when you eventually made it over to the United States, did it live up to your expectations?
0: For first of all, before I moved here, which was crazy in its own right. Um, I came here for a summer when I was fifteen. Mm. Um, Bears had just won the Super Bowl. I had a pen pal um, from Chicago. Young listeners, the pen pal is a crazy concept before the internet era. <laughs> where you would, and listen to this, this one's going to blow your mind. You would write letters with words and then mail them to your mate. Madness. And he, he or she would write back. And you'd write things, oh, you know, about I'd write about life in Liverpool, my agony, my pain, Everton Football Club, what was going on, Um, and send uh, like scarves and, and and football memorabilia, soccer memorabilia. And he'd write back, and the Bears were on this Super Bowl journey. he send me like the Super Bowl shuffle. He'd send me, Uh, posters of William Refrigerator Perry um, leaning against a refrigerator which I had over my bed he sent me a huge foam finger that said Bears number one which my brother told me if I wore out in the street in Liverpool someone would punch me in the face and I didn't listen to him and they did punch me in the face and I learned it's very hard (laughs) to get blood out of a large foam finger but um, he invited me over to Chicago at the end of end of the summer, he said, come over. And I had never been, I think I'd been flown once at that point in my life to to, to somewhere in continental Europe. And so going to Chicago, it was as if I'd been invited to Mars or Venus. Um, it was that exciting. And when I landed in Chicago, in the Northern suburbs, that John Hughes used, that is Canvas, Glencoe, mm-hmm. Highland Park, Northbrook. Um, the, the amazing thing about it was was it felt like I'd been there before. You know, I'd seen, so I'd watched The Breakfast Club, so bloody many times. I'd watched Weird Science, uh, you know, forwards and backwards. And arriving, it felt like I'd stepped into my own John Hughes movie. So as a kid, you know, when I arrived that summer, hearing Run DMC's debut album um, for the first time, hearing hip-hop, eating Arby's, um, spending a summer at the beach where... Uh, Belinda Carlisle and and higher love Steve Winwood were were vaguely audible the entire bloody summer. Um, That felt incredibly familiar. But obviously, when you arrive in a place, I I, I met William Refrigerator Perry bizarrely, wonderfully, as I narrate in the book. That summer, he whispered in my ear, dream big dreams, kid. I did and you should too, Um, which I took as meaning the fridge himself, the man who. Uh, was over my bed in a post-up was telling me to move to Chicago. He was probably just trying to get the hell away from me. That's what all (laughs) athletes tell any kid they want to get away from. But I did. I decided to move to Chicago this land that I had thought about, dreamt about, that my family, me and my great-grandfather, had actually set out for from Ukraine, but had got off the boat to stop early in Liverpool when the boat doctor refueled refuel, thus stranding us for eight years. I'd always dreamt I was an American trapped in an English boy's body. So I swore to move to America, and I did. When you arrive, as your question hints, with a one-way ticket and no return home um, and no visa, no work visa, but you're determined to make a go of it in america life is the american reality and the american dream are two very different things
1: mm. now i have a sort of personal appreciation for this book because uh, i'm from new york but i spent a good deal of my my childhood living abroad and there's something almost magical about walking into jfk when you land back in new york and i think it's like more special than any other place in the world walking out of that airport and your initial foray into America was obviously Chicago, but but you are now live in New York. How did, how did you make it from Chicago to New York? Was that always the plan?
0: No, there was never any plan. I'm, I, everyone's <laughs> like, how did you do what you do? And I mean, part of how I do what I do is America allows bald men to be on television, which is just an incredible yeah. and incredible and rare feat. But <laughs> all of it has just been, I wouldn't even say medium-term planning. Everything has been so serendipitous. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a grind and a struggle um you know, arriving here and knowing nobody no friends no family no money um no visa but it's all just everything is um is, yeah, the 80 um i love it when a plan comes together that's just retrospective monday morning quarterbacking mm. and so there was never any plan i did grow up in my uh childhood bedroom in liverpool um as i talk about in the book i painted the manhattan skyline. A very crude version. When I look at the photograph in the book now, it looks more like Warsaw. Having been to Warsaw, I mean, the painter did not use his imagination hugely, and did not nail many of the signature buildings of the Manhattan skyline. But it was against the American flag. There was a Statue of Liberty, and I, I now live in that in that city. And I'd go to bed as a kid uh, in a dark, dark time. I would arrange the curtains so the light would just crack through. The curtains and land on Lady Liberty's face. Um, so to, you know, CBS uh, morning at the launch of the book, worked out with the Park Service how I could read the introduction to the book at the base of, of the Statue of Liberty. It was incredibly meaningful. It was incredibly emotionally overwhelming. Uh, but I have no idea how the hell that happened. I have no idea how the hell any of this happened. It's just short-term planning, um, a lot of hard work, um, and a, and a a huge modicum, I'd say there's tenacity involved, which is a quality that I'm quite fascinated by, but there's been a huge amount of luck.
1: Do you think that tenacity is something, I mean, that seems like something that you really appreciate about the United States and about how that's sort of like one of the founding ideals of all the people that come here. You sort of, you speak about that a lot in the book.
0: Yeah. Tenacity is, it's just an incredible quality. I, I watch sports, uh, for a living and a huge amount of where, how I watch sports, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's the NHL that we're, we're blessed to cover, you know, the NFL, the NBA, when, when when their players come on our show. I think the quality, the one quality I go back to over and over and over again, you know, my favourite athletes um, that I love having come on to talk to uh, because they allow me to touch upon human narratives that transcend sports, which is something I'm always trying to do. Like uh, Alex Karusek, he's one of my favorite athletes. I adore mm. him. Um, a player that uh, was on the cusp of uh, undrafted, should have gone to Poland or Austria or whether and You know, the whole uh, old undrafted players are, are, are forced to go. He to. went to the G League, the development league, and through force of will, just propelled himself um, <laughs> into the Lakers and, and became a champion. That that kind of human quality is one that I have always admired. I think there's a great football manager, uh, legendary uh, gentleman who's come on our show a bunch because we're very blessed Mm. that for a variety of reasons, every single major football manager around the world wants to come on our show. Mm. Uh, Arsene Wenger is his name, a French genius um, Mm. from Arsenal Football Club, a great um, uh, exemplar of, of nominative determinism. And I asked him what, what separates the great from the truly good. Um, in his op- opinion, he didn't have, to, didn't have to miss a beat. He just said tenacity, hmm. the, uh, the, uh, the belief that you will go from A to B through any obstacle without deviation in focus. And I believe that absolutely. And uh, I think it's a very American quality at the end of the day. Grit, determination, focus, perseverance, tenacity.
1: He's a wonderfully philosophical uh, Frenchman, Arsene Wenger. I feel like he'd he'd make for a good interview. (laughs) He's
0: amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, another reason that we've done uh, what we've been able to do in the sports space is that Arsene Wenger had a great, early rise and then a Mm. very slow noble excruciating yes brutal brutal (laughs) brutal brutal over you know 10 years of just never able to always chasing the success it became like Sisyphus just rolling Mm. that rock up the hill every time and And English journalists, when they were with him, just would zing him every single moment. um, You know, this player wants to leave? This player hates you. What are you going to do after that loss? Do you fear losing again? And I realised, ultimately, enough people are asking those immediate short-term questions. And when I was given half an hour with him to make a film, I I asked him, I was like, the things I wanted to know was, does he sleep well? Does he think about death? Uh, Is he afraid? Uh, How does he take feedback? What does he keep out on? How how does he know what to let in? Uh, You know, questions about life. And he was, so bloody thrilled to answer these things and the question asking a Premier League manager what do you think about death because I had been waiting for someone to ask me that question for 20 years and by the way the press guy was just panicked the whole time just wanted yeah Yeah. wanted to like like aren't you going to ask him about what (laughs) players hate him aren't you going to ask him why why we lost and I was like no one gives a crap ultimately I want to know what you feel what you fear what you think and um and that's ultimately that I always remember when I asked him about death, his eyes lit up and he gave me the most, he really had been waiting. It yeah. involved several philosophers, some of whom I'd heard, some of whom I'm pretty sure he was making up, but it was <laughs> it was poetry and he was willing to make himself vulnerable, which is what I feel like I've done. I mean, this is why the book, the book success has been so mm-hmm. bloody humbling to make yourself deeply vulnerable, to put yourself out like that. Um, To show that to America and to have America really grab the book and relish it is it's genuinely one of the most humbling, uh, humbling experiences of of my career.
1: Now, the the first line of the prologue of your book is I was born, reared and raised on American soft power. And I'm wondering if you think that American soft power is still as potent as it was when you were growing up. And what I mean by that, you know, I grew up at a time when New York was lionized by every single medium. The biggest movies, rom-coms to action films, they were all set in New York. The biggest musicians were from New York or considered themselves successful when they got to New York. And you know, putting aside as you allude to in the book whether the stories that the United States peddled about itself were ever true, I want to talk about the perception of the United States and. I really feel like the saturation of media that we're experiencing right now is breaking apart that collective opinion about New York and about America more broadly as this magical place and New York being the most impressive city on the planet. So do you agree with that? Do you think that that's that's sort of losing its potency by this sort of saturation?
0: Number one, it is the Mm -hmm. greatest city in the world. Okay, Just to lay that, I mean, Chicago looms large for me Uh personally, and I'm about to go there this weekend with my eldest son, take him there for the first time and throw out the first pitch at the Chicago White Sox. And I it's genuine, I, I have not been this nervous since my bloody bar mitzvah. This is like, this is partially because I've never thrown a baseball before. Have you been?
1: Have you been practicing?
0: You know, I haven't. I fear that if I practice too oh. much, then I'll be—I'll uh, be just doing a Mariah Carey and just bouncing yeah. the ball about three foot to the left. I've just I'm just sweating wing it.
1: on your behalf, right? I'm now. just gonna
0: wing it, but.
1: Yeah, wing well, it. You should wing
0: it. I, I'm definitely going to wing it. I mean, yeah. What could go wrong? So, it could go really <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I, I think I've got to say, I think I could give Tony Larisa six good innings. So, yeah. that that New York is amazing. Chicago, also amazing. And I'd say two things. One of the reasons I wrote the book, Aiden, in the first place, and I think I'll write this in the introduction, was a horror uh, that I experienced upon reading a Pew Foundation study uh, that came out in 2017. Where they discovered that only forty six percent of Europeans uh, thought positively about the United States of America. I, <laughs> I was that was that was that was like I had been slapped in the face by a wet fish. I couldn't yeah. believe it. Like. I could not be who I am without Run DMC, without Tracy Chapman, without Don John, without a litany of of human beings who uh, helped me um, think about the world in a way different to the to the, the pathway that was that was evident to me uh, in Liverpool. So the fact that the majority of Western Europeans think negatively about the United States—it was utterly crushing for so many different reasons, especially during the pandemic, where the world cried out for global leadership and. Mm. That was part of the reason why I wrote the book. And I I can only say that the power of the American idea lives on. And I know that because I became American 2018, June the 18th, the greatest day of my life, um, in a courtroom in the southern tip of Manhattan, Um, with 162 other freshly minted new Americans from 42 different countries around the world. Uh, This is the the climax of my book. When you put your hand up and you say the oath of allegiance and you become American and then you chat to the other individuals who have gone through the same pathway um, as as you just did, you hear their stories. And my book is my book is about the idea of America the central idea around which I have organized my life but I just escaped you know being beat up in school by sadistic teachers <laughs> and uh you know and and, and the, the the terror of late nights out in Liverpool on a Saturday night um the, my fellow new Americans had escaped civil war conflict famine um and worse um and when you talk to those individuals about the idea of America, the power of the idea of America, how it gave all of us strength, courage, confidence, joy, and hope when we bloody needed it, and then you do do absolutely and completely. i encourage any of your listeners to go to one of these ceremonies. Anyone can go and watch them. And if you want to reattach yourself to, I, I wrote the book, I say, in a sense of optimism, a sense of joy, the sense of optimism and a belief in the good in people, I believe, I hope, I hope will prevail, then go to one of these ceremonies Mm. because it will reconnect you to a feeling I have where I I, there's not a day I do not wake up in New York. And thank God I live here. Thank God I'm married to my wife. But these are things I never take for granted. And when you have gone through that oath swearing, um, I think everyone who's done that feels the same as I do.
1: Now you you discuss the the naturalization ceremony in the book and it's a very moving passage. And because as you said, like those ceremonies are known to be incredibly powerful and they're often touted as symbols of America as this melting pot. And, but in the last couple of years you had the election of Donald Trump who, who won after running a campaign as a proud nationalist. And has that punctured your idealism at all in the last few years? Obviously the book is brimming with idealism and you wrote it this year. Um, but did that sort of puncture that idealism at all?
0: Well, I, I, I said earlier, my great-grandfather, Harris, left mm. Ukraine. Um, and this family myth we have that um, I was very close to my grandfather. I talk and write about it in the beginning of the book, my grandfather, Sam. Um, who was also a a kosher butcher, uh, but he was a kosher butcher not in Chicago, the hog capital of the world. He was a kosher butcher in the northwest of England, which was not such a fertile terrain. And when things were dark, and they often were, um, he had this cheap tchotchke Statue of Liberty, which I actually have on my desk now. It's like, when you look at it, you see it's like a probably a 50-cent piece of Uh. souvenir, uh, just tat, uh, but to him, the, you know, he would when things were dark and I was eight or nine or 10. I'd go over and play chess with him every afternoon and he'd take this this piece of tap, the Statue of Liberty off his fireplace and we'd both look at it together solemnly and he'd say, we should have lived there. We should have lived there. So I'm saying that because for me to lift up mostly because of William Refrigerator Perry telling me in my mind to move here. Mm. You know, Tracy Chapman giving me the strength, the tenacity to make bold moves, not stick around in dark situations, but, you know, get out while you can, which is a message or a message of fast car. You know, run DMC, listening to their music, um, using their mouths as spigots, just spitting out words and then trying to make those words come true. Um, I came here... And so I feel a deep sense of achievement in that my family's three-generation dream of moving to America I have completed. And the American reality is, as all dreams and realities, they are two very different things. Um, I'm fully aware that a love, um, there's a childish love um, and there's an adult love. And any adult who is in love knows that love is not something you take for granted uh, love is work. Uh, every, everything, everybody you love has strengths and everybody you love has weaknesses. And being in love means you commit to work towards savoring the former, being aware of the latter, working on them. Um, and I think I, think I wrote in the, the epigraph of the book I mean epigraphs are such weird things Aiden. it's like you use someone else's words <laughs> and they're, they're often much better than anything that you conjure <laughs> in the 200 200 pages that follow and it's true in my case. you know I, I use the words of the of the great American poet Langston Hughes who wrote oh let America be America again the land that never has been yet and yet must be mm. and I offer up the book in that spirit
1: now your book is all about the the love affair with america and your your life moving from liverpool to to here um but you are you were made famous from your podcast uh which is also an nbc television show which is all about football um, or soccer to the, the american listeners um that's something that you didn't leave behind uh in liverpool when you finally made it to america was that just because you love football so much that you couldn't let it go
0: it's a great question. I moved here in 1993, right before the US World Cup 1994. And that World Cup was meant to put football over the top in this country. <laughs> we joke on our show that soccer is America's sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. <laughs> and what I, what I witnessed living here was that instead of being an overnight success, like the hula hoop or the yo-yo, mm. uh, a fad football soccer's growth here has been slow and steady every world cup that audience is growing and a i, I more, yeah. yeah and i felt it 2006 i should say football soccer is how in liverpool liverpool is soccer plays a role of high school basketball in indiana or high school mm. football gridiron in texas it's everything it's how we understand the world it's how we announce ourselves to the world it's uh, it's it's how we make meaning our very structure of meaning and it was bloody hard i'm not going to lie when i moved to america um, and there was just, it, not only was it not popular, but it was genuinely despised. I remember being a, a well, I was a weird English counsellor on summer camp in 1990 in Portland, Maine. I had a day off when England were in the World Cup semi-finals, and I drove around, I'm just writing about this now, I drove around the, the bars of Maine, um, sports bars of rural Maine, begging them to put the World Cup final on. They're all like, hey, no way, bro. They all wanted to put like, whatever the predecessor of the Portland Sea Dogs minor league baseball game, they all want to put that on. And, and so I, I understood that where, where football was, I mean, I saw it become no longer that. I saw the growth, um, you know, we have benefited where in blazers is a tiny surfer on a massive wave. And yeah. that wave has occurred for many reasons that may be, be of interest or not of interest, but, uh football is now a women are world cup champions the you know back to back world cup champions of men are this young golden wave of of european talent there's a massive young uh for your media podcast it's in the demo the the audience <laughs> um and yep. it's uh, to me it's the greatest place in the world to cover football from
1: i really want to talk about the euros which ended in absolute tragedy for england earlier this month um for our listeners who don't know, can you explain what it was like to watch England, which is a team that has had, since I've been watching football, always a good team of players. Um, again, some come so close to victory before shitting the bed in dramatic <laughs>
0: <laughs> I should say, and that laugh may give it away. I ride with <laughs> Team America now. I just want to be totally clear. Because Everyone- I, I,
1: I heard you say this on another in, in another yeah. interview. Do you, yeah. if England plays America, you support America?
0: Yeah, I have a rule in life to always do the opposite of whatever Piers Morgan does. So that's. <laughs> uh, uh, I will say when America played England in the in the Women's World Cup in the semi final, yeah. I, I was all you know America with all of my heart and soul. When I say I love America more than Kenny Powers loves America, mm. you know, um I, I mean that absolutely and completely. I it's I am so joyously grateful to bloody be here to wake up here to work here to you know to be a be a voting member of of american society so that that, yeah it's quite funny i will say my little kids i have lots of them uh my youngest kid uh ozzy wrote for a book report at school he said ozzy bennett is a british american who blah 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 and i read it i was like holy crap what are you talking about i said what's he doing um, and, I, you know, I realize he needs to I've written my story. He needs to be free to write his own. But I, I yeah. don't see myself as a British American. I'm like, I am all You're in. American. So that's a long winded answer to your question. So that the, the, the English national team, however, the easiest way to describe them to an American audience is they are global football's New York Knicks. They mm. are constantly constantly always about to fulfill the great hope of their long yearning fan base. And they always find a way to utterly self-sabotage. And as you say, totally crap the bed. And they did say normally they do so with abject failure. Um, often it's just by being beaten by the Germans, which we do on repeat. And perhaps uh-huh. the cruelest thing here was that they actually beat the bloody Germans, which was in my lifetime an all too rare Uh, thing to watch. They dragged themselves into the final. There's a a song um, which the fans have sung for 30 years, um, which has given rise to the catchphrase, it's coming home, football's coming (laughs) home, Uh, which has always been said in irony. We always know it's never, it's always us uh, just joking ourselves, but it actually felt like it was bloody hell. The game was being played in London, it really was bloody coming home. Um, And then they got absolutely out for, out muscled, out everything by by a deserving Italian team. And and I'll just say that, not as an English-born person, because I honestly, genuinely don't give a crap. um, But apart from my family are there, it would have been nice for them. And I do feel the lockdown there has been. I know it was bad in Italy. I know it was bad in Spain. Mm. But in England, if you follow the politics, it's after Brexit. It's been. It's been just a disaster. And I felt the nation deserved some happiness. And this young football team, footballers in the 2000s, were really a pretty stereotypical bunch of wannabe A-listers, champagne, VIP mm. room, you know, uh, drive a Lambo, crash the Lambo, walk out of Lambo, shrug and buy another Lambo, um, uh, leave, leaving Lambo around a telephone pole or whatever. Um this group of people and this is this humanly it made me sad as a human was that they were so likable so, such a diverse young bright optimistic face of of human beings who stood up for human rights for you know uh um uh, lgbt rights for and anti-racism um talk, they talked about depression hu- uh, mental challenges they they were the kind of england that I would love to see, and to see them, to see them lose um, at the end of the day. I felt sad for them because that's the face of England. Never mind on the field, but off the field, that I would like to come out this time of chaos.
1: I can imagine it must have been particularly tough to see the response after the game. Now, I saw a lot of headlines of it. I'm not sure how extensive it was. But you could probably shed some more light on that. But there were, uh, there was some va- racist vitriol directed at several young black players. Um, who are all, like, young and brilliant players. Um, wh- what exactly happened there?
0: It's devastating. It's devastating. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's before the game, just the violence, the, you know, there's a... T- there's a
1: stampede I, at Wembley, right? Yeah, there's a
0: stampede yeah. of human beings. You just thought there was, you know, we've been locked down for 17 months. We deserve to, to break into this tournament and crap it for everybody else. You know, <laughs> young kids being hurt. You know, parents of players being hurt by yeah. just you know it was just willful acts of violence. Um, yeah, there's a, the symbol of this was a you know we used to have an empire, now we have a fan that uh, somehow and you can look it up on uh, on Twitter fired a bottle rocket out of his anus. Um, Believe it, you know, yeah. fantastic, you know, great, very, very proud. Um, but that was all really, and as you say, an appetizer for the human darkness that happened mm. in the wake where the three kids, and they were kids, who missed penalties, which is just like Russian roulette. It's a crucible of pressure that you can't even ever train for. There's no way of... uh, It's a ridiculous way to end the game, to be candid. It's a ridiculous way to... It it, uh, turns a collective game into a complete individual crapshoot that you can never actually practise for that hysterical pressure. Uh, they can practice on the training ground the penalty but to do it that long war mm. with the world watching you can Brutal. never yeah. yeah so these three kids missed and look here's how I understand it football and this is the wonder of football I mean, this is a wonder of football to me as someone that covers it and believes that football is a way of capturing life it is life is gorgeous exquisite it can transcend it can make the heart soar but Football just lifts up a mirror to the society that surrounds it. It yeah. always does. That's why, to me, the the global uh, football is such a powerful uh, and riveting narrative because when two teams walk out onto the field, their nation's histories takes the field alongside of them. And that is that's about as high stakes as it can get. And it's wonderful, but it's also dark when you see... I mean, if you watch games in Hungary with the Hungarian team and... Yeah. Uh, and, and the black shirts, thousands of black shirts, all bands black shirts in the crowd. Football is just a refraction of the reality that surrounds it. And when that reality is dark and England is a divided nation and a nation fighting for its soul, for its identity, um, that darkness will will come out. And I knew as soon as that kid, you know, we did, we, we did a, uh, during the Euros, we did a series of uh, instant on the final whistle, Spotify green rooms. And I, I, we talked instantly, like, oh, my Lord, second that penalty, the poor kid yeah, um, missed uh, Sacco, a 19-year-old, the penalty. We just knew that darkness would ensue, and it would. But that darkness is not a footballing darkness. It's a societal darkness that refracts back and is expressed through football. And that makes it nonetheless sickening, but it's a British problem uh, that's ex- expressing it through the nation's game.
1: Now, before I let you go, one thing I'm really interested in talking to you about is what you see as the differences between how sports media is, how sports is covered in the United States versus how it's covered in England or abroad. Um, I, I get the sense that American coverage of sports is very political. It seems very entwined with the American culture wars. Do you see, do you think that American media has a different approach to covering sports than let's say the British media?
0: Can you give me an example? So I fully, under, I don't want to start opining. I, I want to fully appreciate, give, give me tangible examples. Tangible
1: examples. Point. When American, when the, when the ratings are down for the NBA Finals in America, there is an immediate conversation about how it's because American players are getting political because they're either kneeling before, kneeling during an anthem or uh, making political statements on the pitch. And it seems like we're, I mean, I just constantly feel like American sports media is constantly suffocated by these political disputes, which are sort of silly. And I'm not sure that British media gets down into that that much. I know there was a conversation around kneeling um, before the England team kneeling before games. Um, and I know other teams in the Euros didn't do that. Um, so I'm just wondering if you see differences there.
0: You know, unfortunately, I do not. Um, okay. I think uh, sports is the most powerful um one of the most powerful mechanisms, one of the most powerful platforms, one of the, you know, if you look at the the biggest forces on uh, Instagram, I mean, they're all footballers um, yeah. at this point. And so ultimately all of that, that in, uh, becomes political and you look in the run up to the Euros and um, and it's heartbreaking to watch. And this is partially also why it was sad that ultimately England fell at the last, their, their manager, a beautiful human being, um, Gareth Southgate, um, mm-hmm. who is possibly an average tactician, uh, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He he is a deeply empathetic human being. He's emotionally his levels of emotional intelligence are staggering, and his communication skills are, are, are unbelievably profound. And as you alluded to at the beginning of the Euros. The team decided to nail, as is, you know, the way the Premier League has done the last two seasons ahead of kickoff as an anti-racism statement. There have been no fans in stadia for about 15, 16 months. And at the mm. first bloody, the first game, the first practice game before the the Euros, these the same human beings who gave utter crap to the three kids who missed the penalties which has always been an element of football, just a far-right, hooligan kind yeah. of culture that follows many of these teams. They hadn't gone to a bloody game in 15, 16 months. What's the first thing they did? They booed their own players. They booed their own bloody players as they kneel before a game. And so poor Gareth Southgate had to spend the 10 days up to the Euros not addressing footballing matters, injuries. For selection, you know, the stuff you meant to bloody talk about. This human being got embroiled because Boris Johnson refused to uh, refuse to speak out and 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 and, um, and, and begged the, the the far right to stop um, attacking their own team. He almost gave them uh, tacit permission, something we're quite familiar with after the last four years here. Tacit permission to keep doing what they were doing. And Gareth Southgate had to, and he did it brilliantly for ten days. Give the nation a lesson in in identity and racism and value. And uh, one one of the Guardian journalists, Barney Renee, said Gareth Southgate carries himself as if he's the last sane man left alive in Britain. <laughs> it was it was amazing to watch. You watch this man. You're like, if this guy was prime minister, yeah, in Britain would be bloody Scandinavia. I mean, this is the leadership we need. Uh, but also, you're like, why does he have to do this? He, yeah. he was he's like for, for American sports fans, he, it's like Monty Williams, uh, that same sense of just human goodness and yeah. decency. But to watch this man have to do it, um, and I wish, I wish that your statement was true that it wasn't the same in Britain, but it is. And during the lockdown, you know, the footballers, the money they make made them an easy target for the mm. government to to attack and culture wars are just part of life uh sports is massive part of our culture it's an easy target um and it's sickening it's sickening now watching the u.s women who are so bloody amazing they are so we we take their winning for granted by the way that the women's sports is so much more competitive women's football one of the joys of my lifetime is to watch english in England, when I grew up at the 80s, if a girl played football, my God, they were it was they, they, it was so humi- they were just humiliated, they were just laughed at, they were yes. thrown to the periphery. Watching the English national team, the women's team, it's one of the most beloved teams um in England now that everybody adores and that transformation of European football embracing the women's game that it often um, decried it's been one of the most joyous stories in my lifetime that means the americans who've always had a massive head start they're now actually there's now many teams that threaten their their dominant their dominant position watching the u.s women be part of the culture wars misinformation um just mm. absolutely destroyed for things they do not even do uh, over the past month is as I, mean, I can say this as an american it's it's heartbreaking and it's just um It's just wrong, but it's that sports and culture and politics are so deeply intertwined right now that unfortunately I can see no end to it here and no end to it in Britain hey, Aiden this is a very depressing end to the podcast mate <laughs> I,
1: I feel like I have to ask you a positive question how are England going to do in the next world cup we have the world cup in Qatar in 2022 yeah what are England's chances I'm
0: pretty sure Qatar will win the Qatar world cup isn't that the whole point of it it's like, like they,
1: they might be the only people that can take the heat to be honest by,
0: by the way Qatar, Qatar there's, a, there's a weird football tournament going on in America right now that no one gives a crap about it's a it's all the American the teams of Central America playing a very shoddy, awful tournament against each other. <laughs> Somehow, Qatar have got themselves invited. Love so that. it's like it's like Trinidad and Tobago and yeah. Jamaica and you know Haiti, Cuba, the United States, Mexico, and Qatar. Yeah. And my God, they came over here, they're sponsoring it. By the way, the reason they were probably invited, Qatar Airways is the lead sponsor. Of course, yes. Um, and my god they are qatar may be the champions of america very very <laughs> sepp <laughs> Bladder,
1: somewhere sepp blatter is retired with a gulf stream because yeah. of the money that he got yeah. from that. God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reborn in the usa an englishman's love letter to his chosen home is available now uh, roger thank you so much for coming on the show
0: aiden thank you for having me courage
1: thank you for listening to this episode of the interview please subscribe to the interview on apple podcasts or spotify And check out coverage of my conversation with Roger Bennett on Mediaite.com.